ka-ching! It's time to talk banks in On The Ledge podcast this week. Before you uh, switch away to another podcast, fear not, because I'm talking seed banks, not the boring money kind. In this week's show, I visit the Millennium Seed Bank, home to seeds from more than 190 countries around the globe. Plus, I answer a question about stuck leaves. Before we get started with my visit to the Millennium Seed Bank, let me get my virtual dustpan and brush out to do a little bit of housekeeping. Thanks for all the fantastic feedback on last week's Jewel Orchids episode. And if you've been inspired to give Jewel Orchids a try, Reshma has been generous enough to offer a discount code for On The Ledge listeners. Visit uglyplantlink.com and use the code ONTHELEDGE10 for a flat 10% discount across all Jewel Orchids until December the 5th, 2021. One use per listener and there's no minimum order. So thanks to Reshma for that. And I do hope that some of you are going to be starting an exciting new collection of Jewel Orchids from now on. A heads up if you are in the UK, one of our listeners, Tom Cranham, has organised a fantastic event on Saturday, December the 11th at midday at Thornbridge Hall and Gardens, where he happens to work. Now, if you've not heard of Thornbridge Hall, it's in the Peak District, beautiful part of the world. And there's going to be a talk by none other than James Wong. And a rare plant sale by Grow Tropicals. And you'll remember that Jacob James of Grow Tropicals joined me to talk terrariums on the show a few weeks ago. So if you want to go along to this amazing event, do check out the show notes where I will include a link. The tickets are £15 each with all of that going to charity. And you can get the tickets direct from Tom. Again, details in the show notes for that if you don't happen to be on Facebook. And on the Patreon scene, thank you to Molly, Anna, Raymond and Eva for all becoming legends. And Sarah, who became a crazy plant person. And just remember today, November the 19th, 2021 is your deadline for getting your address up to date in Patreon. If you are a member at the legend or superfan level, end of the day today, get it done. That'll make sure that your mail out will go to the correct address. And if you have any problems, please, please do drop me a line. I will help you. I do love it when I get messages from listeners reminding of things I've forgotten. And one of these came from Anne this week, who reminded me that back in episode 79, quite some time ago, I talked about the soil sleuth. That was my gadgets episode. And I talked about this tool, the soil sleuth, which is kind of like a big stake that you can stick into plant pot substrate to tell if the plant needs watering. And I said I would update you on how I got on with the soil sleuth and I hadn't done so. So apologies for that if you've been hanging on for that information. If you didn't hear the episode, as I say, it's a big plastic red spike that you poke into the soil and it's got little notches along that spike which allow you to take different depths of soil samples to see whether your pot needs watering. And Anne wanted to know whether it was any good because she wanted to buy one as a Christmas present for a friend. What I would say is it is good for big 
containers. So if you have containers over, I would say, 30 centimeters diameter, it's really excellent because you can get down deep into that root ball and really see what's going on. You're not relying on a soil moisture meter, which can go wrong, to be fair. This and, and sometimes often doesn't work if you're using particularly um, airy substrates. With this, you're actually getting a piece of the soil at each of those depths out, which will give you a real indication of how dry it is. So it's really good on big plant pots. And I think that's what it's designed for, for interior landscapers to use when they're going around and they're looking at really big planted containers. If you've got smaller pots, it's not so useful because it's quite a chunky thing. It's kind of like a very thick pencil width and it could be too big for some of your smaller pots. I guess you could make one of these, a smaller version, by just making some notches into something like uh, a wooden kebab stick if you fancy getting crafty, and that would definitely work. So maybe experiment with that. But if you want to buy it as a gift, I would say definitely go for it if you know that person has a lot of really large pots. Other than that, yeah, my advice is always use your finger or just stick a kebab stick in there or a lolly stick, wooden lolly stick for a few minutes and see if it's damp when you pull it out. Uh, that's the easiest way. And while you're doing that, you're also adding a little bit of extra air around the roots, which is no bad thing. And Alastair got in touch about the Q&A on a cold conservatory in episode 201. And Alastair was full of useful uh, suggestions for what could be grown in this cold conservatory, suggesting citrus. It's a really obvious thing for a cold conservatory. Don't know why it didn't occur to my brain. They will do very well in a cold but not frosty conservatory. They really don't like central heating in the winter, so will be much, much happier out in that cold conservatory uh, than they would be either outside or in your warm house. Other things that Alistair mentions along the same lines are things like olives, acacia, bougainvillea and brugmansias. So if you've got those on the patio and they need somewhere to go, a conservatory is a great place for them. He also suggests cymbidium orchids, that day-night temperature difference that you'll get in a cold conservatory actually helps to initiate flowering. So that's a useful thing. And Alistair writes, she can also grow some of the showier forms and varieties of hardy orchids, such as Calanthe and Cypripedium. Awesome. And he also mentions Clivia. Gosh, again, another obvious one there. Really good choice. And begonias, especially the hardier ones like Griffon and Carolinifolia, are okay with low temperatures as long as they aren't kept too moist. What excellent suggestions. Thank you, Alistair, for your thoughts. If you've been listening to On The Ledge for any amount of time at all, you'll know that I'm pretty enthusiastic about seeds and sowing houseplant seeds is an annual event. Well, actually a year round event here at On The Ledge. So I was delighted to receive an invitation to visit the Millennium Seed Bank at Wakehurst Place, which is Kew Gardens sister site in West Sussex. I got the chance to go deep underground inside the seed vault to find out how, why and what seeds are being preserved to make sure that whatever happens to the world, we don't lose that genetic diversity. Now, it's worth pointing out at the beginning that, of course, 
Britain has a bit of a history of going out around the world and trashing places and taking what we wanted with very little care or attention of the indigenous people or the indigenous plants. So the issues around ownership of these seeds and that genetic material is absolutely vital. And this is something that Q and the Millennium Seed Bank are starting to address. So this was one of the first questions I had for Lucy Taylor, who's Seed Collections Assistant at the Millennium Seed Bank, to find out how things are being done differently today. I mean, I guess the first thing I want to know is, where are you getting the seeds from? I'm, have you got intrepid people going out into the wild, people sending seed to you? Indeed we do, but we also have to absolutely, really carefully say that this is a partnership. Yeah. We've got seeds from over 190 countries, and it's a global partnership. It's a 50-50 exchange, so we will go out to countries, we'll have partners on the ground, we'll agree a target list with those countries... And when they bring the seeds back to queue, we do not own them. They always stay under the ownership of the partner country. They can decide what we want to do with them. So they can choose to make them available for research or they can just choose to keep them safely banked. It's always up to them. And that's really important, isn't it? Because, you know, in the, the United Kingdom, we have a bit of a, a track record of going to other places. And, yes, uh... <laughs> the good old bad days of the British Empire, which yeah. Q was involved in. We are extremely aware of that. Yeah. Yes. So it's really important, isn't it, that that kind of ownership is is something that is thought about and thought through and also granting the nations where these seeds are coming from. Um, Absolutely. The partnership extends to things like resources and training. We often host our partners over here for training. We will share uh, knowledge and ideas and research and the latest um, best techniques we have in conserving seeds. It's absolutely paramount that the seed that arrives at Wakehurst Place to be banked in the vault is viable free of pests and able to last for as long as possible. So now I'm going to find out what happens to the seed when it first arrives. We're in the x-ray room. I'm, I'm seeing some pictures on the wall of x-rays of seeds. This is so cool because what blows my mind about seeds is just the sheer variety of shapes, sizes, colours, structures. Yeah, absolutely. And there are days when I don't know what will arrive. I might have a back a package from Madagascar that turns up, or I could have something from South Africa or Mexico. It's quite exciting to open the box of a new batch and see what we've got. Um, when a batch arrives, I will unpack the box and I'll check it to make sure that everything's safe, everything's nice and clean and dry, and there aren't anything wriggling or moving around. If it is, Does that sometimes happen? Well, yes, I think we had giant earwigs from America once, but I'm oh, afraid wow. they have to be dispatched humanely and immediately. We can't possibly risk releasing anything out um, it's the Sussex countryside. No, indeed. <laughs> so you've got that. You've got rid of any any insects. What what do you do next? So I will open up the collection and I will see what state is it in. Is it in the entire plant, which we really don't want, mm. or is it just pure seed? Um, what we want to do is clean away all the debris, leaves, twigs, etc. Space in the bank is limited, and so it's much easier for us if we just have pure seed. Once I've cleaned off all the debris. Um, I need to find out what the state of the actual seed is. What's the contents like? Is it full and nice and healthy? Or is it infested with a bug or infested with a fungus, for example? So the quality matters. But as you can imagine, collected from the wild, it's not controlled conditions. So we, trying to clean seeds is quite a long process, yes. It's a very manual process. They haven't yet invented a machine that can completely do all the work we do. 
Um, we might use sieves and bungs to separate all the different sized seeds. We have um, machines called aspirators, which separate things based on weight. So the heavy full seed will fall into the heavy fraction. Uh, an empty seed will just blow off into a light fraction. There's some videos online. I've seen of homemade aspirators as well, which are quite cool. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Well, so, I think yeah. you just you just want the seed. You don't want yeah. anything else that goes no, with it. And um, not always possible to separate out all the infested ones. Right. If you've got a nice juicy bug inside, like it probably weighs the same as a full seed. Right. So we might not be able to aspirate it out, but importance of x-raying is we will then find out the potential quality right this won't tell you if they're alive but it will tell you if it's potentially viable right i've got um, you because if you have ten thousand seeds but nine thousand of them are infested that's very important mm-hmm. to know because mm-hmm. you need to know how many seeds you've got yeah for the yeah. future yeah yeah that's that's true and it's i i guess i'm just looking at the shapes of these different seeds that are pictured on the wall there's ones that look like feathers there's ones that look like Little kidney beans. There's yeah. round sausage. ones. Sausage. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's amazing. This one, you can see a little mummified bug in there. Oh yes, look at that. Yeah, it's so made its way in. If you'd like to, we can do one quickly now. Yeah, that would be great. So this is our marvelous X-ray machine. It's absolutely fantastic. It's all enclosed, and it's safe for us to work here with oh, no right. here. Right. Okay. So we don't have to go out of the room like we did absolutely like a dentist not. does. No. <laughs> And um, it's actually designed for hospitals, extra tissue samples. Oh, right. Which is why it asks for, like, patient names. Right. <laughs> so do you put, like, you know, whatever this genus name is yeah, in there? I do. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> the patient right. is. So we'll just open it up. What we've got here is um, a legume from Madagascar. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's like a round, shiny... Red ladybird almost. Yeah. Isn't that a beautiful seed? I love legumes. They're really good for seed banks. Yes, nice and big <laughs> nice size. <and> big. <laughs> yes, you're not seeing that Dust. No. There we go. So we've just poxed it in. And I'll just start up the machine. It should only take a few seconds. This isn't quite so good for small, tiny things like begonias. I know right. they're beloved of houseplant people, but yeah. I'm afraid I twitch when I see them. Their seeds, so their seeds so it's really dusty, yeah. Just yeah. a big pile of dust. It's not very helpful. So I can't x-ray them. I have to actually physically cut test them, i.e. slice them open with a scalpel. Oh, wow. Presumably under a microscope. Yeah. <laughs> You're working. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I always worry when I get a packet of seed and you look at it and you go, there's nothing in here. And you have to kind of look really closely and go, oh, yes, yeah. there is. It's just so small, I can't that's, hardly that's see That's my life here sometimes. <laughs> so oh, they look. Okay. Yeah. So what we've got, if I just change the contrast, we've got lots and lots that are good. But can you see here? Yes. These are not so good, so there's something's going on in them. They've like just got that. some sort of shadows there, haven't they? Which I suppose yeah. could be they've dried out too much, or then I think it's probably infestation. Infestation is very popular with bugs. Yeah. So here's a nice good one. It's nice and full yeah. around and solid and consistent. Not so keen on these ones. Right. Yeah. That's but overall, that's a very nice collection, actually. Yeah. That's not bad at all. We we can never really eliminate all infestation from yeah. our collections. So yeah, do you ever X-ray and think every single one's got a bug in it? Is it quite common to get a lot of infestations? Not in very common, but it does happen. Yeah, um, it's just part and parcel, really. Yeah, I'm sure. So if you, what we can do is because this is a digital image, we can save it and send it to our partners to show them and say, right. "This is what happened." Perhaps could you try and collect a bit earlier next time, or could you put some kind of net around the developing um, seed pod mm, to prevent mm. infestation? So yeah. 
it's a two-way communication. Quite often they'll try again the next year, and next time we'll get mm. a nice batch. Yeah, yeah. So if we're happy with the cleaning and the x-raying, we then count them to find out how many seeds we've got and how many potentially viable seeds we've got. So then we can work out, uh, we can make this many available for research, etc. But once we're all happy with that, we can then take them down to our bike board. I can't tell you how excited I was heading down the spiral staircase to the vault and wasn't disappointed because the door of the vault looks like a massive bank vault door just like you'd see in the movies and of course it's there to protect the seeds from any natural disasters that might happen in the area. Once we'd got through the airlock and into the vault itself Lucy showed me some of the treasures within. Apologies for the background noise, but as you can imagine, there is a lot of machinery going on to keep the conditions right in here. So this is our bank vault. Um, This is underground dry room. And it's very dry because we need to dry the seeds below 17% relative humidity to get them ready for banking. In here, you can see these cauldrons coming up. And these are where the seeds are stored. There is shut in there, thank you. So you can just have a quick look through. Oh yeah, okay. Wow. Oh, I see. Loads and loads of shelves with what I, in my, would would call mason jars, glass jars full of seeds. Actually, my colleague's in there right now. So it's minus 20 in there. Oh, okay. Minus 26 with the wind chill. Oh, okay. That's chilly. That is chilly. What's the biggest seed? Have you got any seeds that are like you have to store in a big, giant... Oh, we've got massive (laughs) palm jars. These um, kilner jars. We've got palms that are about this big. Right. That you need to... <laughs> well, the thing is, we've got to store everything from an orchid to a palm. Right, so yeah, so you've got different sized jars. jars. We're moving into these trilaminate foil bags now. We mm. think they're, they're much better long term. So we've got, we've got really teeny tiny ones. Um, yeah, for the, real, the dusty ones. Oh, yes, look at those. So when a collection is ready and it comes downstairs, we'll leave it here for about a month to make sure it's dry enough. Yeah. We'll test it to make sure it is indeed dry enough. And then what we'll try and do is we'll split it into two. We'll split it into what we call an active portion and a base portion. So the active portion can come in and out the bank if someone wants to research it, for example. Um, other universities, for example, can order seeds. So we'll get them out the bank and send a, a sample for them. Or they might be used to grow on some plants for education purposes. Basically, they're coming in and out, but we don't want all the seeds to come in and out the bank. So we have a base portion that goes in and stays in. Mm-hmm. We don't want them coming in, warming up, pulling down again, etc. Mm-hmm. We're not sure that's great for longevity. Yeah. So, so we've got an array of different seeds here. I mean, I'm immediately blown away by these blue seeds. Yeah, Look these are at, fantastic. These okay, are. so this is the traveller's palm. Oh, I know that plant. The traveller's palm is a beautiful, it's really stunning. structurally beautiful palm from well, Madagascar, pollinated by lemurs, and the seed. I can't even, it's, it's bright blue. You see that so rarely. That is an amazing colour for a seed, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's really beautiful. And some of my colleagues have been lucky enough to see this plant in the wild. Wow. And it's quite chunky. It's about the size of a sort of a, of a haricot bean, I suppose. Yeah. But just this amazing colour of blue. And it, that, that is a rarity then. Not many seeds of that colour. I've never, no. I don't think I've ever seen a seed that colour. No, I've seen grey, wow. but not that kind of blue before. Yeah. I'd be interested to know if there any, are any more out there. Yeah. And behind it, there's 
that looks to me like a piece of old-fashioned telephone wire that you had on your dial phone, <laughs> the bright yellow coil. It looks like a... Um, okay, so this is Prosopis strombulifera. It's a legume. Chili. Yeah, that I was mean, put in 2005. So along through the coils, there are little seeds at different oh, conditions way along. Wow. Research into analgesic pain relief and antibiotic properties. Yeah. That's just the most... I mean, it looks like a bead or something. Yeah. So I've got all... I have to deal with all this variation and work mm. out what to do with it and how to bank it and keep it as safe as possible. We're going to keep this one in the jar. Yeah. Because that one is deadly poisonous. Okay. That's called Abrus precatorius. And so the, you've got some... Is that... What is, is, what's in the plastic bag? And is that something to keep it dry? Yeah, so this is a little silica gel sachet. So oh, okay. we want to keep the seeds dry, but unfortunately in the cold rooms it's wet. It was yeah. a trade-off with the technology at the time. Mm. I believe they're now building seed banks where actually the chambers itself are dried. Right. So we have to put them into a completely sealed vessel. Mm. And this little silica gel sachet will go green if moisture gets in. Then we right. need to get it out okay. and change the bottle. Um, and these seeds are, are bright red and black. Um, I'm presuming, uh, is it really quite toxic for us? I'm presuming you're not going to get it out for yeah. that reason. Although, funnily enough, if you eat one and swallow it whole, you're probably going to be fine because okay. it's a legume. It's right. really hard. Yeah. To <laughs> but if it's cracked and you eat one, well, you're in, you're in trouble. One of the symptoms is death. So, um... <laughs> Symptoms death, that's not a good sign, is no. it? That is not a good sign. Yeah. This is a neat one, sort of, it's showing you the longevity of some of these collections. This is all kind of new. We don't know how long some of these will survive. But this is a little amaranthus that was probably collected maybe at Kew Gardens itself in 1969. Mm. It was last tested in 2017 and 100% germinated. Wow. It is amazing how long-lived some seeds are. And I guess particularly in these great conditions, obviously that allows them to um, last the, ma- the maximum possible length yeah. that they can. We're trying to give them the perfect conditions to last as long as possible, mm. really. Mm. Yeah. But I've got a couple of houseplants. Yes, I'm here. looking, I'm seeing some familiar names here. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's interesting that you've got Mimosa pudica because that is one of listeners' favourite seeds to grow for our sow along. I have to admit, I am too. It's yeah. so fast, such a fascinating plant. I can quite see yeah. why Mine that is. about five centimetres now. Okay. I what you're doing there. Opening and closing. So, so fascinating. So these were collected in 1971 in Nepal. Wow. Yeah. And they were last tested in 2006. And again, they were 100% germination. So. so you take a small sample of the seed out for that testing and then te- try to germinate them in their yeah. ideal conditions. We need to know these seeds are alive and stay <laughs> yeah. alive. And we also need to be able to turn them back into plants for restoration. Right. So we need to figure that out. Um, we will do that about a month after they've been banked. And then we'll test them every 10 years to check they're okay. Mm, mm. But you can see from this tiny, tiny little begonia there, there's hundreds of seeds in there, but they take up such a small <laughs> amount of room. It's, really, it's, it's just like a tiny, tiny amount, isn't it? So you can imagine how you can keep a huge amount of genetic mm. material in such a small space. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, we reckon it takes about £2,000 to make a collection, but they're worth... You can't put a price on the collections that we've got here. Of course, yeah. And if you were trying to, like, if you were trying to have, like, 200 travellers' palms, you can imagine the amount of space you'd need in a botanic garden <laughs> yes. and the watering and the care. And, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. they just sit here sleeping. That's why the seeds are just so, such incredible things, isn't it? The, the sheer potential that is there and just waiting for that moment when uh, conditions are right for them to burst forth. And what about these big 
fellows at the back here. They look like chocolate truffles, but I doubt if they're I edible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so these are Dayun Edule, and they're yeah. from Mexico. Wow. So I think some people do grow them as houseplants. I've never, okay. I haven't come across them myself. I can't picture that particular one, but I love those seeds. They're big. They're the size, I said, they're the size of a small chocolate truffle. And um, I mean, I just would love to see those big seeds breaking open and germinating. It must yeah. be an exciting sight, but they are amazing. That, that one is also under threat from habitat loss and poaching right. for, the, for the cultural trade again. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you can see why we've got such a big door on the front. We have to be ever so careful. Do you think there's anything missing from the labels on these jars? Well, presumably you don't advertise what they are, they are individually. You've got a barcode so that you can, you know, but other people might not be yeah, able to go, oh, no I need to... We don't yeah. put names on eight because yeah. if anyone did manage to break in, we'd hope they'd freeze to death before they found <laughs> what they were looking for. Yes, um, yes. But also plant taxonomists... They do like to change the names. They do. So we don't want to label a load of plants. If they change it, then have to go into minus 20 and do all the labels again. So. I can imagine. That's a, that in itself must be a lot of work. So that label tells me the location, so I can right. go and find it in the bank. Yeah, yeah. We have some collections where, even if I go into the record, it won't tell me where it's collected. Hmm. The location data is kept secret. Hmm. Well, if I can drag you out the bank, yes. perhaps we can go see some things germinating. Yes, let's go. Right, we'll head back out around again. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks ever so much. Uh, this is our germination lab. And once we bank the seeds, we then need to work out what they need to germinate. You can imagine seeds in the wild. Often they don't just spring up here, there and everywhere. They need the right conditions and the right cues before they germinate. And this is the most exciting bit of my job for me, to find out what they need and try and crack it. Um, we can do lots of things here. We've got incubators, as you can see all around us, and they range from zero degrees to 40 degrees. Wow. We can do a day-night temperature difference. We can mimic a dry season and then a wet season. Uh, we can mimic a winter going into spring. Anything to try and convince these seeds to germinate. <laughs> uh, we need to be able to germinate them, because if we can't get them back into plants, how can we use them? And So that must be a real sort of... Um, detective work sometimes yeah. you, I mean you must have an idea from possibly the climate but some seeds are there any particular seeds that just you just takes you a long time to figure out what's oh, going on like um, for example hollies ilex mm. got loads of them in the UK but it turns out <laughs> you've got to put them through two or three years of warm cold stratification mimicking the seasons before they'll germinate oh really so they need those several stratifications in yeah. order to absolutely that's so interesting when do you give up? Like after the seeds for that three or four years, you've been giving it this cold. You've, there's still hope. You we keep going. We don't. We still keep going. I think the longest germination test we had running was about 500 days. Wow. But then we'll just keep going until yeah. we'll eventually, we need to work it out. We have some things that are harder than others. Yeah. And then we might have one of our specialists, we have germination specialists who will try and work on it and see what they need but yeah we yeah. usually get there in the end yeah well it puts into perspective my own little home efforts at growing things it's comforting to know that it's not always easy to germinate things no, though no and sometimes it's not you it's the seeds yeah i mean yeah. we've even x-rayed commercial packets of seeds and there's not been anything in there it's just been mm. an empty husk so yeah it's not always you <laughs> and sometimes they can look perfectly fine but actually they're not alive mm. so yeah. Take heart, we struggle as well. So. <laughs> That's good to know. That is very good Absolutely. to know.
from the Millennium Seed Bank shortly, but now it's time for question of the week. And I'm afraid I'm going to download a little bit in this answer. So apologies in advance for the upcoming rant. Question comes in from Sally. Don't worry, Sally, I'm not going to rant at you because your question is perfectly reasonable. The question is regarding the unfurling of leaves and those leaves getting stuck. And Sally has heard various plant YouTubers mention this and has had some experience herself with a philodendron prince of orange. The plant's been potted up to a slightly larger container and Sally thinks that the problem may have happened when she was moving the plant out of an IKEA greenhouse cabinet as the new leaf was emerging. And from the photos, we can see that the leaf does appear to be rather stuck. What does that actually mean? Well, lots of these aroids have leaves that emerge from caterpillars, which are a kind of sort of rudimentary leaf. They don't really do photosynthesis. They're more there as a kind of bud scale for the actual leaf. And when the plant is ready to unfurl that leaf and get it out there in the world, it starts to emerge from the caterpill. Some plants have persistent caterpillars that stay in place after that leaf has exited. Some have caterpillars that fall off. But this is an oft, oft mentioned thing on social media. Oh, how do you remove the leaf from the caterpill? Now, I am the world's biggest fiddler. I call this me being barnacly, which means if I see something like a barnacle, I want to kind of rip it off. But even I exercise extreme self-control when it comes to, in inverted commas, stuck leaves. Please, please do not use tweezers, your fingers, a knife, anything else to fiddle about with leaves that are taking their time to come out of a caterpill. Why? Well, it's kind of like imagining the, oh, well, my baby's a bit overdue, therefore I'm just going to have a little wiggle around up there with a, with a set of forceps to see what's going on. Because <laughs> as we all know, things take their own sweet time and the leaves will emerge in due course. What can happen, and I think this is what's happened with Sally's plant, is that a drop in humidity can cause the leaf to slow down in its emergence. So the best thing to do in this scenario, really, Sally, if you can, would be to put that plant back into the IKEA greenhouse cabinet if you can. If you can't, you could always just stick it in a more humid place or maybe even stick it in a clear plastic bag for a few days and you will find that that leaf eventually slips out lovely and has no problems. The risk of damage when you start fiddling around with those very, very young leaves is enormously high. And oftentimes people will think, oh, I've successfully removed it from the caterpillar. Oh, great. But then, oh, why has my leaf got these funny marks on it or this strange random hole? Well, it's because you fiddled around with it when you shouldn't have done so. Sorry. <laughs> so that would be my strong advice. Try to increase humidity around the plant in a way that makes sense to you. As I say, those are the methods I would recommend moving it to somewhere more humid, etc., etc. I wouldn't keep the plant sprayed, constantly sprayed with water, although that may help as well. Depends what your substrate is and how much light it's getting and so on. But yeah, a humid air will solve this problem for you. Just as I always say, check the substrate, make sure it's not bone dry or waterlogged so that water is reaching that tender young leaf as it develops. 
do all of those checks and just wait, just be patient and the leaf will emerge. I mean, if you've got stories of successfully removing leaves from their caterpillars, please don't at me. Just be very smug and glad that you've managed to do it. But really, it's one of those jobs that people like to fiddle with. Um, You know, if you're looking for more jobs to do with your houseplants, and God knows I'm not... (laughs) because I've got enough on my plate without creating work for myself, then, you know, maybe do some propagation, maybe do some root pruning, but maybe examine every inch of your leaves with a hand lens looking for pests. But please don't fiddle with unfurling or in inverted commas, stuck leaves. OK, rant over. I hope there was some helpful advice in there, Sally, as well as my rant. Uh, I think it's one of those things that people get very worried about But as I say, I've got a philodendron, I think it's imperial red. And yeah, it's not getting enough humidity, really. And yeah, sometimes the leaves do get stuck, but it does resolve itself and the plant is fine. And as a result of me not fiddling around, the leaves, when they do emerge, are intact and okay. So there you go. That's my advice on stuck leaves. If you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line. On The Ledge podcast at gmail.com is the address. And I would love to hear from you. I'm currently collating questions about Christmas related issues. I've had some Christmassy Q&A questions. So I'm asking for more of those to put together a Christmassy episode. So do get your Christmas related questions to me. Maybe your Christmas cactus is already in flower. Or maybe you are wondering how to stop your paper white narcissi from falling over. Whatever your festive inquiry is, do let me know and I will endeavour to help. And now let's head back to Wakehurst Place where I'm finding out more about how the Millennium Seed Bank is helping communities around the world conserve their seeds. So my name is Aisha Farouk and I'm a what they call a conservation partnership coordinator uh, for the MSBP. So, so tell me what that involves. That that's your official title. In practice, official. well, what do you what do you end up spending your working day doing? <laughs> so my typical working day is very varied. Um, what I take care of is the MSBP, which is the Millennium Seabank Partnership. And MSVP is essentially a global partnership. I think we've got 155 participating institutions from about 95, 97 different countries and territories. My essential role is to coordinate and take care of those kind of partners around the world. My particular region is actually Europe and Oceania. There's very similar continents (laughs) that are very close together. What we tend to do is we work with partners to try and help them um, or support them in conserving their plant um, diversity through seed banking and also uh, through training and kind of knowledge exchange. Um, So I do a lot of travel to do um, to my partner countries to talk to them about kind of troubleshooting, talk to them about how to kind of work with what they've got really Um, and also build capacity within countries to conserve um, seeds. And what are the challenges in that work? That sounds like it's, (laughs) I presume there's so much habitat pressure around the world and competing demands. Yeah. Does that impact on seed populations and taking care of endangered species yeah so we we uh tend to focus or essentially our partners tend to focus on things that are extremely threatened 
uh, within their, you know, particular countries, particular habitats that they're interested in. So we used to say, you know, the three E's, endemic, endangered, economic, important. And we use essentially as much of the tools that we have in our arsenal to actually cope with some of these big challenges. Um, while populations are being uh, extremely threatened at the moment, we're going through mass extinction, two and five plant species are, are threatened by extinction, which is a big, major issue. And then coupled with that, you've got kind of food security issues. So people who are um, dependent on some of these plants or useful plants are seeing that, you know, that it's diminishing and knowledge is not being exchanged. So we do a lot of work, not just in conservation and not just seed conservation, but also livelihoods as well setting up community seed banks, for example. And more recently, uh, I've got a project uh, looking at uh, conserving uh, useful wild-harvested fruit and nuts in the south of Caucasus, uh, the South Caucasus in Georgia and Armenia. So we're working with local communities to see what they find important in terms of the things that they harvest from the wild, um, bringing some of them into cultivation, storing them in seed banks, duplicating them here, um, and yeah, things like that really, and, and making them aware of kind of sustainable harvesting. So we do we do a varied amount of things around here, um, and I do have some things growing in the nursery that's quite that's, that's from that project as well. Should we go and have a look? <laughs> Let's go and have a look. look. I'm oh, so excited. Are you going to show? You've got you've got a, a vial there. That yeah. Just... So it's there's loads of different seed banks around the world. I mean, essentially, yeah, is what you know we're storing seeds. But there are so many different seed banks out there and so many different purposes. So, I mean, if you think about seed banking, it's been around since, oh God, whenever people started growing mm. <laughs> food. Um, you know, you've got your European uh, kind of botanical garden seed bank um, and they have kind of their own cultivated collections, for example. And a lot of their purposes is actually to grow on the collections and also to um, exchange with other botanical gardens through the index eminem, which actually started in like the beginning of this 18th century, which is fantastic. And then you've got the agricultural seed banks, obviously, and that depends on kind of which country you're in. So in the Caucasus, for example, they're big on their wheat and their breads and the, you know, the pomegranates. I didn't realize how many pomegranates <laughs> they were, but yeah, they're really on that. And then in Asia, you have the rice and the bananas and things like that. So very different in terms of but essentially agricultural food seed banks and then you've got your doomsday seed banks which essentially is you know the Svalbard crop seed bank and then the millennium seed bank which is all to do with wild species and we tend to say that we are like a bank in that a lot of the collections although we are essentially a kind of doomsday seed bank our collections get used um, quite regularly for research and restoration and sometimes we, I mean, it depends on the agreement that we have with our partner countries, obviously, because sometimes we have really, really threatened species and our partners are like, yeah, these, these, are, <laughs> these are not to be touched, which is fine. And then we've got, but most of them are uh, available for, um, for use. Uh, I know you've got quite a following in Australia. Mm. Is that right? Yes, yes. lots <laughs> of listeners in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Sure. so we've got a really, really strong relationship with the Australian Seed Bank Partnership there called the ASBP. They're fantastic. They do amazing work. And they do a lot of active restoration as well. They duplicate their seeds to the MSB. 
So a lot of the seeds that we have are actually duplicates of mm. original collections from uh, which are within the partner countries. Mm. And um, after the 2019 bushfire, the, you know, the, the fire intensity was was really was really out of this world. It was a really really bad. Some obviously, like you remember the devastation <laughs> yeah, that yeah. we saw, which is you know bushfires happen all the time, but that was never really seen before. And for some of the species that are in Australia, some of them have very small isolated populations. And these small isolated populations had, don't really have the resilience to cope with such intensity. Um, so we got a call from our friends at the South Australian Conservation Centre and said, look, we, we kind of need um, some seeds sent back, uh, particularly of this endangered pea called Glycine Letrobina. Um, and this particular population was collected uh, the seeds from the population was actually collected in 2007 um, they duplicated some of the collections here and we when they called up and said look we need we need to restore some of the fire scars in Cudley Creek we just said yep yeah, perfect sent them 240 uh, 250 seeds from this particular collection and then I think a few months later they sent us a lovely photo of um, germinating and oh, it's now wow. being used to restore yeah. Cuddly Creek which is fantastic and we want to essentially do more of that like you know mm. the decade of restoration and getting more seeds to be used in that way Thanks to everyone at the Millennium Seed Bank who made me so welcome. And do check out the show notes for links to the Millennium Seed Bank website and more information about what they do. If you are a Patreon subscriber, a legend or a super fan, you can listen to my chat with Ed Eichin of Wakehurst Place, where we take a tour of the meadows there, which is fascinating. And you can also hear some extra chat with Lucy about germination of seeds from the seed bank. And Aisha tells me the incredible story of the seeds that came from a sailor's wallet and germinated after several centuries. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. I shall be back next Friday when we'll be talking thrips. I'm interviewing someone who knows thrips literally inside and out to get the lowdown on the life cycle and habits of these houseplant pests. Until then, remember, to plant a seed is to believe in tomorrow. Have a great week. Bye. The music you heard in this episode was Roll, Jordan, Roll by the Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku, and Overthrown by Josh Woodward. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.